began as home thoughts from abroad when Benjamin Britten and his partner Peter Pierce had gone to North America. They went in 1939. In the 1940s, uh, Britten read in the BBC magazine, The Much Late Lamented Listener, an article by the novelist E.M. Forster about the 18th century Suffolk poet George Crabb. And it provoked thoughts of Suffolk, where, of course, he'd been born and where he'd grown up. Peter Pierce was dispatched to find a copy of Crabbe's works, and he found a second-hand copy somewhere in Los Angeles, and Britain read the poem The Borough, which, of course, contains the terrible story of the Albra fisherman Peter Grimes. He said later, Britain, that in a flash I realised two things, that I must write an opera and where I belonged. So, Britain and Piers returned to England in uh, April 1942 after they, or Britain has failed to convince Christopher Isherwood, of all people, that he ought to write the libretto for this opera about Peter Grimes. Fascinating footnote that. What on earth would Isherwood have made of the story of Grimes? He asked instead to write the libretto Montague Slater, who he had worked with uh, at the GPO film unit in the 1930s, um, and Montague Slater sets about turning the story into an opera libretto. But it's perfectly clear that both Britain and Piers himself spend a, a great deal of time and take a, a leading role in drafting the story and shaping the libretto. And in this process in which the three are working on it, the character of Grimes becomes much more complex than it is perhaps in the original poem. Rather than simply being a rather brutal, clear-cut villain, as he is for Crabbe, he becomes, of course, a victim of both fate and, more importantly, of a cruel and vicious society. That isn't to say that the darker aspects of his character aren't retained. But there's also now something visionary about him. And we are, of course, never entirely certain how it is that the apprentices that he takes on actually meet their deaths. Britain himself said of the work after the first performances in 1948 that it was, I quote, a subject very close to my heart, the struggle of the individual against the masses. The more vicious the society, the more vicious the individual. So those who live in the borough, led by lawyer Swallow, the, uh, the fisherman and part-time hell and damnation preacher Bob Bowles, Mrs. Sedley, with her endless little pots of laudanum in this production, Pills, and perhaps the apothecary Ned Keane, view Grimes with suspicion from the very start. And his only friends are, of course, the schoolmistress, Ellie Norford, and the retired sea captain, Balstrode. On the sidelines, and watching the drama, very particularly in this production, you can see images from this production on the screen as we talk, is Auntie, who runs the pub, and a pair of nieces who are obviously clearly no better than they should be, and they certainly are nieces, not in any conventional sense. In June 1945, Joan Cross, who was then the manager of the Sadler's Wells Company, announced that it was her intention that the company would reopen Sadler's Wells Theatre, which had been their home before the Second World War. And she also announced the opening work would be a brand new opera by a British composer. It would be Peter Grimes with herself and Peter Pierce in the two leading roles of Ellie Norford and Grimes. There was, it seems, complaints from the company. Some members of the company suggested there was favouritism at work in the casting and others, amazing to think this now, uh, complained about the cacophony that was the score. And yet, when Peter Grimes opened in June 1945 with Reginald Goodall conducting, it was, of course, as we all know, a complete triumph. 
And it's interesting to note that the box office takings within the period in which it appeared were exceeded those for the two other operas that were being played by the company at the time, which were La Boheme and Madame Butterfly. How often now does a new opera manage to beat, as it were, war horses in the repertoire? Clearly, English opera had come of age. Well, we've more guests than ever tonight to prepare us for this evening's performance of Peter Grimes. We've three members of the English National Orchestra who are taking time off to be with us from the pit, and they've brought, so to speak, their harps to the party because they are going to play. We've got the tippinist, Bill Lockhart, John Thurgood, who is the principal horn with the orchestra, and Kath Haggo, who plays violin. We're also going to be joined by Martin Pacey, who is a member of English National Opera's music staff, and by the soprano Claire Mitchell, who will be singing tonight's performance, as she's a member of the chorus here at English National Opera. But our first guest is the Britain scholar Philip Reid, who's currently editing the composer's letters. Will you please welcome Philip Reid? Philip, I've just said that the, the box office takings tell this extraordinary story of the success of Grimes. How do you account, I mean, can we think of cultural reasons why Peter Grimes should have been that remarkable success in 1945? Well, I suppose um, <clears throat> uh, the UK had been starved of that kind of uh, new work at that time. I mean, Britain, Britain spent the war years in this country um, writing music for radio programmes, um, writing concert music, but Grimes was the main thing. And there was a big, a big resurgence of the arts at that time in this country. Um, you have to think of, uh, in fine arts, people like Henry Moore, John Piper, they were all part of that, uh, that same generation. What do we know about Britain working on the score? We know quite a lot about Montague Slater and Piers in Britain working on the libretto. Mm. What do we know about the score? Do we know how he organised this? I mean, this is not his first opera, in a sense, but it is the first as it were, conventional grand opera he's written. He had written an opera, an operetta in, in America with, with W.H. Auden uh, called Paul Bunyan, which wasn't a, gr it was a very beautiful work and tuneful work, but not a great success. Um, it's very interesting, actually, when he decides to write Peter Grimes, uh, he spends a great deal of time on the libretto, um, refining it, sharpening it, shortening it, tightening it up. But one of the other things he does, which he doesn't do very much later in his uh, operatic career, is he writes a lot of descriptions in the libretto of the kinds of music he's going to write. So, you know, he works out what are going to be arias, what are going to be duets, what are going to be choruses, how the forms will go. And perhaps even more fascinating than that is that from the very beginning, the famous sea interludes that, you know, we hear in the concert hall all the time, um, were absolutely embedded in the opera. They were a very, very critical part of his thinking. And I was fascinated to look at those libretto drafts because he writes kind of verbal descriptions of what those interludes will sound like. In other words, he says, you know, the first interlude, um, which you hear in the opera immediately after the prologue, which leads, you know, leading into act one, um, he writes something like everyday gray seascape. Uh, and the storm is, is clearly not just a, a physical storm, but it's also a psychological storm in Grimes's head. Um, and he writes these kind of verbal descriptions, I, I guess, to sort of help him remember what he's going to be doing when he actually gets down to writing the, the opera. And he probably spent 
Well, all of, uh, all of 1943 and quite a bit of 1942 just looking at the libretto and changing it. And in fact, Grimes, he sat down and started working it um, in January 1944, I think it was, he started writing it uh, and finished the opera just on a year later. Pretty good. It's pretty good for your first opera. You could write later. You wrote operas more quickly than that, but mm. that's that's pretty good going, actually. Um, you you do you find precedence for what he's trying to do in the work that he's already done, not necessarily Paul Bunyan, but in the work mm. that he's he's written musically before? Because there's been a, a sense of, of the theatrical and the dramatic in his work before. Absolutely. Um, uh, you mentioned the GPO film unit and and, and Montague Slater's connection with that. Um, Britain had written music for films in the 1930s. He'd written music uh, for the theatre, incidental music for the theatre, and also for big dramatic features on the radio. So he was starting to, to, you know, to kind of find his way around what, what worked dramatically in music. In fact, the last big piece he wrote before Peter Grimes was a big radio feature. It was broadcast over two nights. It was so long. It lasted three hours. Uh, two two programs of an hour and a half, and it was it was the story of Ulysses, the Odyssey, written by a man called Edward Sackville West, who was a friend of his at that time. And Britain writes a massive, massive score of incidental music for for that piece, um, for a big orchestra. It's like it's uh, other than the music's not like Peter Grimes' music, but you know the kind of instrumentation, the level of. Uh, interlinking of drama and music, spoken drama, of course, in, in, in this play. And music is very, very uh, close. There are a lot of thematic leitmotifs, transformations of those, all those kinds of things are there. So he's feeling his way. And I think also in his own music, I mean, things like, uh, if we think of the kind of amazing orchestral writing in Peter Grimes, which I'm sure we're, get, we're going to hear more more of fr from from members of the orchestra t t this afternoon, um, in his own music, things like Sinfonia da Requiem and things like Our Hunting Fathers, which was a very early orchestral song cycle he wrote, you could see, even in the 1930s, he was quite the master of writing orchestral scores, orchestral music. It, it was something which was very much part and parcel of his um, of his makeup. One of the stranger requests that he makes to Ralph Hawkes at his publisher, Boozy and Hawkes, is to send him uh, the full score of Richard Strauss's Der Rosen Cavalier. <laughs> um, um, uh, do you think that we should look to Strauss in a sense, or is it to another composer that we should look to for Britain's uh, sense of how to shape drama, uh, music drama? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think uh, Britain was no great fan of Strauss's music in later life, but I think, you know, like many of the composers... Uh, many many composers. He was very good at and curious about all music uh, from whatever period, but particularly contemporary music. And you have to remember Strauss in 1945 was still alive and still writing and um, was effectively a contemporary composer, I suppose. Um, Britain could take things from other composers and see ideas and see ways of, of using them. And if you think of Rosencavalier, and the most famous number from Rosencavalier is, of course, the final trio at the end of the opera. And in Britain's opera, in Peter Grimes, you have a, a quartet for, for women. It's actually a trio because the two nieces sing in unison. So it's for three, three female voices, vocal, vocal lines, as it were. 
Um, and I'm sure, you know, there was a connection there in his head. Somehow he thought this would this would work out. But I mean, Grimes, the background of pieces which you could you could start to think about with Peter Grimes. I mean, Mahler, for example, is a very powerful influence on Britain's orchestral writing and orchestral thinking. Um, Shostakovich, Lady Macbeth of Metzenst, had been performed in this country in 1936. Benjamin Britten was there uh, to hear that. And of course, it, it has its own very powerful sequence of orchestral interludes. Um, Bergs Wozzeck, he was there in 1934 at the UK premiere by the BBC, conducted by Adrian Bolt. Uh, and that was a work which he absolutely knew inside out and, and admired uh, in every way. So those kinds of works are, are certainly lurking there. Even odd things like, if you think of the, um, if you know Mussorgsky's Boris Godunov and the coronation scene from Boris Godunov, if you listen tonight to the opening of the second act of Peter Grimes, you can hear something of that scene. Balinese ceremonial music, uh, un an unlikely kind of background to Peter Grimes, but in fact in that same interlude, um, Britain in uh, the early 1940s had started to get interested in music from the Far East. He'd, he'd actually made a recording with uh, a man called Colin McPhee of transcriptions piano transcriptions of Balinese ceremonial music. And I think you can, you can hear how that's, that's influenced that piece. Gershwin's Porgy and Bess is another slightly surprising piece that fed into Peter Grimes. Kusevitsky, uh, the conductor, Sergei Kusevitsky, who gave uh, Britain the commission for Peter Grimes. When he gave him the commission, he said, go and, go and hear this opera by George Gershwin, which is happening in New York at the moment. And Britain heard it. And somehow, you know, took quite a lot of things from it. There are some parallels with, with the character of Peter Grimes and the character of, of Porgy in that opera. And the storm, the whole storm scene is very, you know, this, it's very similar in its construction. So he was very good at, at, at taking his own music and other people's music and, and finding ways of, of, of making it all anew. A quick last question. I mean, it's called Peter Grimes, and quite clearly the protagonist is Peter Grimes. But you know, when you leave the theatre after the, a great performance of this piece, in a way, the protagonist really seems to be the sea. Yeah, I think that's true. I think I think he, um, uh, you know, Britain felt a powerful, powerful connection with the sea. He was born in a house in Lowestoft, on the east coast of England, in front of the North Sea, and he lived most of his life within, literally in Albra at one stage, within a stone's throw of the North Sea, or later half a mile away. I mean, he never really uh, left it. And I think the sea was something he responded to, and you can hear that quite clearly in, in Grimes, and particularly in the orchestral sea interludes. Philip, thank you very much. Stay with us, if you will. Um, our next set of guests are three members of the English National Orchestra who have brought their instruments. Would you please welcome uh, John Thurgood, who is the principal horn, Kath Hago, who plays violin, and Bill Lockhart, the timpani. Would you please welcome three musicians? <laughs> We've never done this before, and a conversation quite like this, so we're all a little bit wondering what's going to... Well, I am wondering how we're going to do it. I want to ask all of you, and I'm going to start quite shamelessly with you, Bill. Um, what is special about being a member of this particular orchestra? Um, 
so used to it, it's difficult to put into words. Uh, it's 28 years in my case. Um, I think it's for a timpanist, uh, opera offers unparalleled opportunities. The repertoire that we play is um, probably as challenging or more challenging and rewarding than even the symphonic repertoire. Composers such as Britton, Strauss and Janacek uh, did, their, did their best work for the opera theatre. Um, so the opportunity to be, to play these instruments uh, in a repertory company where you get to play Peter Grimes not once in a concert but eight or nine times in a run is, um, is probably the most rewarding aspect of life as an opera musician for me. John Thurgood, have you been uh, as long with the orchestra? 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what for you have, uh, uh, have made it an important, valuable time? I think it's, it's very similar. It's the opportunity to play extraordinary repertoire. If you play with French horn, um, Wagner is just the best stuff to play, um, followed by Richard Strauss. And... You know, you need huge forces and lots of rehearsal time to be able to put these things on. Um, Gotterdamrung's got 13 horns in it, so it's extraordinarily expensive and complicated. And, and uh, you need to be in a house like this to have the opportunity to do that sort of work. You know, it, it really doesn't come up in a symphony orchestra very often. And when it does, you do it once or twice, and that'll be it. And it's the repetition that really gets you to know it. And it's amazing, when it comes back after three or five years, you learn new things about it. Um, and that's a really interesting thing for me. Kath, as the kind of baby in the, in the trio, if I could put it like that. <laughs> although, um, I, it often seems to be a very curious choice for a professional musician to want basically to sit in a hole in the ground in the dark, when they could be actually sitting up on a platform elsewhere. Was this, does this ever occur to you that you, know, you could actually be doing other things? Or is there something particular about being in the pit? Um, well, I was in a symphony orchestra before, and when I got the job here five years ago, ev well, not everyone, a few people, oh, how are you going to cope? You're in the dark. You, you, won't you miss being on stage and the lights? I mean, the fact is, all of us work with other orchestras as well when we get time. Um, and I don't, I don't miss it, actually. It's strange. The, the, one of the good things about being the f in the first violins in this orchestra is that we can see most of the stage. So that makes it very entertaining. Um, and it's just great to be able to, you know, if we've got a few rests, we have a quick look. Um, we can't see the audience at all, actually. Um, the wind can. But um, so, you know, that's not so good. But we recently did the Magic Flute, and they, uh, some of you may have come to that, and they built the pit up. So we were at the same level as the audience, and it was great. And we really enjoyed that. Um, but no, I don't miss playing on stage. Is a performance of Grimes something that you look forward to? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot for us to do. It's What's great about it is that it's playable because a lot of music we have to play, particularly contemporary, is you look at it and go, well, we can't, you know, you could spend 10 hours practicing that and it won't, you still can't play it. So it's, it's actually written really well for us. I mean, there's some tricky bits, but it's not impossible. What are the tricky bits? Um, 
there are he's very specific about what he wants and uh, you know he'll write what string to play something on to get the right effect um, in the storm I mean and that's where the whole orchestra you know really goes crazy um, some of that's quite difficult but again it's not Impossible. I mean, I th Rose and Cavalier is one of the hardest things I've ever had to play. I mean, that was every page was like the, it's Paganini. Um, whereas with this, it's you know there are some bits that need a bit of looking at, but it's it's not too bad. And are by the same token things that you look forward to with this piece, um, the storm, the beginning of Act Three. Um, yeah. That they're the main main bits, and listening, you know, listening to what everyone else is doing in the orchestra, because there's always something going on, and the amazing singers. John, uh, what 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 are the tricky tricky things with the principal horn? Well, strangely for us, Britain doesn't write very sympathetically for the instrument. Um, I don't know. I've always been under the impression that he wrote at the piano, and and no. wrote in C. I don't know if that's a correct. No. Right, right. Because he, he, he doesn't seem to use a harmonic series. Although he uses it in the serenade, when we get to the operas, he doesn't do that. And he writes, um, it always looks to us as though he's not thought of it as an F instrument. And so the intervals are slightly strange at times. Um, unlike Richard Strauss, who you can tell grew up from a, a small child listening to his father play the horn. Um, and he uses, which is really good actually, it's very interesting, he uses just about every effect he can get out of the instrument. Um, they're not all successful, but generally um, they're good. He often would write, writes mute, but gives you three beats to put the mute in. So that's really tricky, and he, that stays right throughout all his writing. Um, but what he writes, although it's awkward and doesn't, I think, always lie well on the instrument. It is really effective. And so our challenge is to get over the technical problems and make it work. Do, do you fancy playing as something just to make, make the point? Yeah, sure.
good. Um, Bill, let's, can we pass the microphone back to you? Um, Bill, the storm is clearly the moment when we, when we know that you're, you're there in the pit. But are, are there particular, you know, awkward corners for you in this score too? Yes, and that's, um, that's a given with Benjamin Britten. Uh, he's, he, he was, as, as Philip was saying earlier, I think um, he took a huge amount of trouble about every aspect of everything he ever wrote. Um, and he made, a, he made it his business to ascertain the limits of what was possible and then mm. to travel to those limits. So he wrote for four pedal timpani in 1944 at a time when in fact uh, British orchestras many of them regarded pedal timpani as the invention of the devil uh, to, the, <laughs> to the point of refusing to use yeah. them <laughs> so that um, the, the timpanist in the LSO would play Bartok and, and simply refuse to play any of the glissandi um, and, and simply stare at the conductor <laughs> he, had a, he had a set of old fashioned church timpani. Do you think Britain had encountered the use of pe pedal timpani in, in, in the United States. In the United States, yeah. yes, and his, his writing changed radically once mm. he'd heard that. So our hunting fathers, um, mm. in response to Bartok and American orchestras, uh, changed Britain's approach to writing for the timpani. Mm. But I think with every instrument, I also suspect Britain rather enjoyed finding musicians' weak spots, those corners, <laughs> the corners of one's technique which you'd rather leave unexplored. So. <laughs> um, and, and I, think he does it, I think he almost does it deliberately, so that it adds to the, in the turn of the screw, every single player goes through hell at some point. <laughs> and, and I think it's part of the tension, it's part of the dramatic effect. Mm. So um, in, the, uh, in the tavern scene after the storm, various characters come and go, opening and closing the door. And when the door's closed again, in turn, various percussion instruments are left doing that thing which percussion players and timpanists fear the most, which is to be playing a very, very, very quiet role, completely alone. Uh, the first one is a snare drum, I think the second one is a tambourine, um, and the third one, which, which leads directly into the great bear and Pleiades, is on, is on a timp with wooden sticks. Now, if I was asked what, what one effect I would like to not have to play by myself, it's this. Kath, <laughs> 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 is, is there a moment you'd like to play just to show us that is, you know the strings are no more favoured than the others? Yeah, um, I thought I'd play a bit of the storm, which you will think sounds like a screaming cat. And when you've got twenty-six violins doing the same thing, and the rest of the orchestra going completely crazy, you'll you'll also agree. <laughs>
Thank you, all three, very much indeed. It's lovely to have hooks that we can now hang our ears on to hear what we're going to hear a bit later. Um, we're going to have some more music after uh, John, Kath and Bill Lockup. We're joined by Claire Mitchell and Martin Pacey. Um, Martin Pacey is a member of English National Opera's music staff. And Claire Mitchell, who's going to uh, sing for us something uh, from the opera, is in fact a member of the chorus, and she'll be dashing off the minute she's looked after us in order to get ready for this evening's performance. Would you please welcome Claire Pitcher, Mitchell and Martin Pacey. <laughs> and Claire, you're going to sing, I think, the embroidery aria, or Ellen Orford's great aria. Thank you.
Claire Mitchell, thank you very much indeed. We shall look forward to seeing you later this evening. <laughs> um, Martin, you're, you're happily going to stay with us. Um, can we talk a little bit about the music for Grimes? How would you characterise overall the score? It's a very uh, complicated, sophisticated score, of course. Um, I think it's, it's incredibly colourful, um, and it has um, an incredible um, expansive lyricism about it. It's a very, very passionate music, and I think um, possibly to a greater degree, um, to a greater extent than, than, than Britain sometimes achieved later on. Um, he was obviously going for writing an absolutely full-blown grand opera, and he wanted to give it the works. Um, and so, uh, yes, it, it, it just has, uh, I, I think one has a wonderful sense in it of, of a composer um, at the height of, of, of his powers really coming into uh, full possession of them, as it were, um, and throwing everything he got at it. So, um, and, and I think it's incredibly varied as well. Um, I mean, a, a friend of mine actually quipped that it's a piece that um, uh, begins uh, like Dad's Army and ends like Frankenstein, in the sense that <laughs> you, you start with the, the courtroom scene uh, where you know the, uh, Justice Swallow is being very pompous and people are interrupting each other and being told to shut up and sit down and all that sort of thing. And then, um, of course, it ends with this manhunt uh, with terrifying power, with people uh, you know baying for Grimes's blood uh, of this character who, for them, has actually become a monster. So uh, it's quite something to be able to encompass those elements, I think. But when Philip was talking, he mentioned a whole range of composers who quite clearly uh, Britain had listened to, learned oh. from and, and, and thought about. Um, the one name we didn't mention perhaps was the most surprising, but when you think about it, the most obvious, which is Verdi. The extraordinary sense in which this piece is laid out with an immense careful feel, as Verdi had, for dramatic structure in a rather conventional way with aria, uh, choruses, Absolutely. and so forth. Yes, no, no, that's right. I mean, although obviously the, the feeling is very through, through composed, I mean, you do get these um, very clear sections, as you say, of arias, ensembles. And I think also what's quite uh, Verdian is the, the, the power with which he uses the chorus, actually, um, and in which he builds up the chorus writing. Um, uh, I mean, the, the, the chorus is really a, a, a great protagonist in the piece. I mean, the, the borough, uh, you know, we, we hear them uh, chattering their gossip and we hear them um, uh, actually uh, singing hymns in the chapel. Uh, and uh, we, we also um, uh, hear them singing about going about the daily work, uh, the, 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 the difficulty of that. Um, and also, um, there's a, there's a marvellous um, scene that he writes uh, building up uh, a, a huge piece of uh, sort of quasi-fugal writing as they are waiting for the storm to come and uh, you feel that the storm is actually building as this this wonderful scene unfolds um, and also their uh, uh, anguish their anguished reaction to what's coming does does Breton give his principal characters a clear musical identity I think he does, yes. I mean, um, we, we heard just now, um, uh, Claire singing beautifully, the, that uh, aria of, of Ellen Orford. Uh, I mean, I think Ellen's music always has a sort of dignified quality, uh, a rather well-grounded quality, even when it's anxious, which it often is. I mean, I mean, for example, in that aria, you know, we hear these very awkward, anxious intervals, but she tends to move with a sort of... There's a self-possession and... and, and um, a sort of honest dignity about the music that he writes for her, I think. Um, Grimes, 
covers a whole gamut. I mean, sometimes he's on a single note, which seems to suggest a, a rather obsessed character. And at other times, of course, as in the mad scene, he all kinds of figuration are thrown out. But I think also one of the triumphs um, of Britain in, in this piece, and in fact in all his operas really, is to characterise every character, even the small, the, 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 the actual relatively insignificant ones. I mean, you hear right at the beginning this, which is in a sense just as Swallow's music, and you know that he's a bit of a pompous prat, actually just from listening to that, it's got, a, got that sort of Captain Mannering element to it. So, uh, <laughs> and all the characters have got that, I think, have got and, something. Uh, Philip was talking about the way which quite clearly the sea is here throughout. Do you hear the sea in the score throughout, too, apart from the interludes? I mean, uh, Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously the courtroom scene, which is a very original and unusual idea for starting an opera, sets the whole thing off. And then I suppose the first sea interlude is a sort of overture. But from that point onwards, I think the, the music, the sea music really does seep right into it. I mean, you know, you find figuration like... <laughs> suggesting a sort of sea swell. I mean, once he's set that up in the first sea interlude, he will then uh, keep using it throughout uh, quite a lot of that first scene. Um, the same with the, with the storm interlude. Um, that sort of uh, obsessive, uh, very stormy, uh, agitated figure uh, runs through the, the, the following scene in a way, so you can never really forget its presence, I think. Thank you. Mm. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, we have a little time, as always, and there's an opportunity for you to ask any of us questions, if you would like. There is a roving microphone, which is about to rove. Put your hand up, catch my eye, as a gentleman has there, and the microphone will make its way to you. Uh, see the uh, uh, dress rehearsal on Monday, and in the last uh, act, uh, all the lights in the orchestra went out, and also we couldn't hear <laughs> the soliloquy. Was that intentional or was that a mistake? I'm not sure I, I was there too, and I'm not sure I can answer that question any more than any of us can. It may remain a Grimesian mystery for all time. Do, do, we, do, we have a, no, do we have another question? Yes, in the second row. Thank you. There's no redemption at all in this aria. Grimes goes a doomed man. Um, is that surprising, or is that what you might expect from Britain and his own view of the war and his pacifism and the fact that the two clergymen involved uh, tangential to the action, really. Uh, no comment on it. Well, might I might add to that, of course, that quite clearly one of the subtexts of the opera is Britain's own sexuality as an outsider. Philip, do you want to, to comment on that? I mean, it's definitely something which, is, which attracted him to the subject, that Grimes is an outsider. Britain, uh, you mentioned Piers and his involvement. I mean, Britain and Piers were, as we know, a gay couple. They were also both conscientious objectors in the war, and that kind of put them really, you know, outside. And this kind of artistic response—it's definitely part of of what he was uh, interested in 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 exploring, and continued to be interested in exploring, really, for the rest of his life. I mean, lots of other operas deal with outsiders of one sort or another. Albert Herring is a kind of outsider, after all. Um, so it, it is something which 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 he was he was passionate the, the about. Quest, the question is very interesting because it raises another issue. I cannot just off the top of my head think of the notion of redemption in any of Britain's operas. Can uh, you think? No, I don't think there is. I mean, I the, the redemptive moment doesn't come. There's always also in Britain, which I think is partly why I, f I find it to watch in the theatre endlessly fascinating. Is there's also quite a lot of ambiguity going on. You never quite know. Hmm. We don't actually really know what happened between Grimes and the Apprentice, actually. 
Uh, I mean, we see what happens to the, uh, the apprentice who dies in the opera, um, but we don't know what happened to the apprentice that, that, that they talk about at the beginning of the opera. We don't really know what went on between Peter Quint and Miles, although we probably have a fairly good idea, but it's never spelt out, and, and that's true in, in, other, in other works too. And he quite likes, I think, that idea of not, not saying and just, just standing back slightly. Another question. Yes, in the second row over there. Yes, thank you. Um, we went to a talk by Paul Kildare the other day, mm -hmm. and um, you, we, we heard tonight that um, Britain was influenced by lots of other composers. Mm. But at that talk, it was said somebody made a joke about the fact that he borrowed so much from other, com other composers. I mean, do you think. What do you think of that remark? Well, 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 and do you think it was a, a plus or a, a minus? Or? Well, all composers steal from other composers. That's what makes them good. Com I mean, Stravinsky did it all the time. <laughs> um, I mean, there's borrowing and borrowing. I think what Britain does is um, to absorb and and make it make it new for himself, um, whether that's Mahler or. Gershwin or Strauss or whatever it is, Berg, Frank Bridge, any of the composers that he that he was interested in. So I think that's that's how I feel about it. Anyway, I think that's what he was doing. But it's true, he was he was very good, and of course he had an amazing facility. He could, if you asked him to, he could write in the style of Mozart or Berg or whoever he wanted to, and indeed sometimes did that. If you think in in the turn of the screw, the um, scene where Miles plays the piano, and it's a bit like he's playing a Mozart sonata or something on stage in front of you, but it doesn't actually, it sounds like sort of like Mozart, but not like Mozart. Well, the Donizetti um, jokes at the end of Midsummer the, Night's yeah, Dream. Or the, the jokes with the, for the, for the Rubicanicals. Yeah. You know, the end of Midsummer Night's Dream where he, he parodies Donizetti, Bellini, early bel canto, you know, bel canto opera, and has great and uh, great fun with that. So he's he's good at doing that. Yes, it's certainly part of his kind of um, his armory, as it were, as a composer. Martin, do you, do you feel the same? That the, 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 maybe one of the great things about this opera, and indeed Britain and other composers, is the capacity to find what you need and make it your own. Exactly that, uh, Christopher. I think I think it's, it is. Um, uh, I mean, it's absolutely legitimate to be influenced by anything. I think, um, but uh, Britain always manages to, um, as Philip was saying, to sort of really absorb it. Um, I mean, the, the the mad scene, for example, in Peter Grimes. I mean, uh, is is sort of almost expressionistic. It's going towards Berg, but it doesn't sound like Berg. It's using a similar technique. But you know, you you hear those triads, which are absolutely Britain, um, and I think it's uh, it's all in really what you make of it. So yeah. I would certainly agree with that. Yeah. I think we've time. For, no, we don't have time. One more question. One more question. Anyone like? Yes, in the front row. The microphone's coming. I'm very intrigued by the contrast between Britain's intimate work, his setting of folk songs, and his grand opera. It seems to me that he's commenting from outside when he's discussing the global stage and from inside in a far more sympathetic way when he's in an intimate mood. Never really thought about it like that, but I, I, I think you may have something there, yeah, yeah. 
There's a, another way of thinking about it, which is perhaps his um, uh, increasing reluctance to write grand opera. Uh, and his, his, I mean, if we look, I mean, we know there are other reasons why, but he actually wants to write smaller chamber pieces. Even, I mean, yeah, that's true. And even before he'd written a single note of Peter Grimes, before he'd even started work on the music, when you just think about the libretto, he's telling, he, I think he may even be in the same letter that he thanks his publisher for sending him the score of Rosencavalier. He said, actually, he's going to write, he already knows I'm going to write more than one opera. I'm going to write lots of operas. But they're not all going to be like this opera. Sometimes I'm going to write operas which are going to be just for small forces and without a chorus and just be a bit more, you know, cheaper to do. And I don't have to tangle with this big opera company that's yeah. scary and difficult. Well, I have um, to say that I think this evening we should be very grateful we're tangling we with a large opera company. <laughs> um, some thank yous, ladies and gentlemen, to all of you for being here, being a wonderfully attentive, thoughtful audience. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I suppose a thank you too to the revellers who failed to revel. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but our biggest thanks, I think, are to Philip Reed, to John Thurgood, Kath Hager, Bill Lockhart and Martin Pacey for sharing their time with the subject. Thank you all very, very much. Indeed. You're welcome.